they were chasing a bad guy, which probably means there are weapons involved. I'm not going to go sauntering down my driveway. Hey, guys. Like, yeah. <laughs> what? what's happening Duh. here? What's going on? <laughs> you need a hand? I'm over here <laughs> yes. in the dark. So I've been trying to find a use for tablets. I'm kind of down on tablets, iPads, etc. I, I... I don't find that they have a niche in my life anymore. So I've been trying to find a kind of on-the-go productivity tool that's not my laptop, if that makes sense. Something I can actually get work done, do mail, um, maybe tweak a document from time to time. And so I found, and, you know, I'm very much a Mac person, always been Mac only. But I found this Microsoft Surface. Have you seen this device? It's actually pretty good. So I've got, I've got a Surface that I just got earlier this week, and I'm still, I, I am wrestling with it is the best way to describe it. I have not used Windows in probably 11 years, 12 years, and using Windows again is so difficult. I just don't understand how this is, what, like 80, 90% of PCs out there are on this stuff? It's crazy how hard it is. I think it was 90% like 10 years ago. I think last time I paid attention, Mac had 10%. But right, um, okay. I think it's okay. gone up since then. I think it might be up around Mac has 15 now. The right. funny part is, is that you, I don't know if you're seeing this in England, but in the States now, Microsoft is basically throwing money at any kind of entertainment product to which they can attach Surface. So, really interesting. Tell me about that because I don't see any right. of that here. So to start off our conversation, it sounds exactly <laughs> like this episode brought to you by Surface. By, by Microsoft mean, Surface. They are buying everything they can. Really? Uh, they're playing this big marketing game just to get in people's faces. Um, there's one guy I know, a, a, a developer I used to work with, who I think now works at Adobe, but I believe he still lives in Seattle. And he said that his experience, this is just a tweet of his, you know, from a couple of days ago. He said that in his experience on a work trip, it's basically at the point where it can replace a laptop. Yeah, yeah, it can. That, that I will give it that. It can. Um, typing on it's fine. And it's, you know, it's got an i5 processor. So it's like it's a proper, you know, desktop class system. Um, it's, it's funny. It's, it's not it's, Mac. It's, it's almost like they're, they're playing a pretty interesting game in that I guess the those new, I can't believe we're talking about this stuff. Basically, anything we talk about, I can't believe we're talking about it. Oh, I know, I know. <laughs> but, well, you know. But check this out. So I, I guess the, the kind of new slate of iPads wasn't necessarily um, groundbreaking. And that they're doing things with those with the new releases that they just announced, specifically with the Mac Mini. So I have a Mac Mini. It's my number one home computer. I, you know, I have an old display hooked up to it. I think I've had it about a year. I think it might have cost like 500 bucks, and I just juiced out the RAM in it. And it's it works great. It's a powerful computer. It works great. So they came out with new Mac Minis this year, you know, a couple weeks ago in which the RAM is soldered to the motherboard, you can't replace the RAM. You have to buy it pre-installed. And it seems like 
there's an opportunity there for a Microsoft to come in and offer a more flexible kind of product. And I'm, I'm, I'm conflating the iPad release and the Mac minis, but it seems like they're, they're hitting them at a good time where they're kind of hittable. Does that sound about well, right? So it, it is. And what's interesting to me is Mac mini seems to be the only reasonable kind of Mac product that's out there. I, I was thinking now with this Surface, I might sell my Mac laptop and get a mini for the office. And theoretically, that is fine, right? It's like a work machine. The mini's amazing as a work machine. I mean, I, I, I'm always like, geez, I've got all this stuff running and, and nothing's slowing down. And yeah, it's been great. I've had rare problems with it. It's um, been probably the most uh, stable computer I've ever had uh, that's that Apple's built. Right. And people don't really pick them up because they're not flashy. You know, a Mac Air or a MacBook Pro or an iMac, Retina iMac, those are flashy, good-looking computers. But Mac Mini, it can do anything that you need it to, basically. Yeah, I've got a monitor, so I don't ever want an iMac. But yeah, Mac Mini might be the way to go. Yeah, and they're, they're, they're cheap. But so these, so what's happening, I think, is that the older versions like mine, which is less than a year old, are now on really um, uh, wanted on the secondary market because these new versions that came out are so inflexible for upgrades like RAM upgrades, you know? Oh, I see, I see. That's always fun. I love those. I love products like I had this uh, Casio. I had a Casio XLM camera that might be like eight or nine years old. And it did one thing that expensive cameras couldn't do. It shot 300 frames per second video, so super slow-mo video. It actually got up to 1,200 frames per second, but only in a postage stamp size video. So as you increase the number of frames, the size of the video gets smaller. But now, like with these iPhone 6s, I guess they can get up to like 180 frames a second. So the gap is narrowed. But for, you know, five to eight years there was this junky old digital camera from Casio that can do something that no other camera could do it's kind of funny and consequently you would see them often in the hands of coaches at sporting events you'd be like what camera is that that looks like some old digital camera and it was these old Casio XLMs because it could do the super slow-mo feature it's funny to have a piece of tech that is that you have kind of for one reason, you know? Well, and it's funny when a piece of tech, um, re, you know, kind of retains either, well, not just popularity and nostalgia, but a use when it's been upgraded several times. You know what I mean? Like the, right. that an older version is regarded as the better version because that well, rarely happens. Everything's thinner and faster, basically. Maybe that's where this stuff is heading. And like, if Apple were to continue to make bad decisions about inflexibility of their new products, um, some of the older products like this Mac mini that I have would, you know, would, would retain their value in a way there's, I feel like there have been a few other examples of that in the last few years. Um, it's the only one that comes to mind where, you know, they release it, it. I think maybe we saw it with like versions of iTunes, like the or pre- iPods. Yeah. Do you remember the first iPod with the physical movable click wheel? Mm -hmm. And then they came out with the second version, which was um, kind of a touch Mm -hmm. pad. And it it lost the, 
you get that tactile, really pleasurable movement and feel. And so the first generations became sought after for a while. And I guess to this day, they're kind of collector's items, the first first versions. You still have yours? No, I don't. I don't know where it is. I've, I tried looking for it about a year ago. I think it's still with me somewhere in some box. Yeah. But yeah, I loved that thing. We have one, and it, it has that old... Uh... Firewire 400 connection, yeah, that yeah. 1394 connection, and I tried to use it as like a, a like a USB hard drive at some point in the last couple of years. <laughs> Did it work? <laughs> I can't really remember, but yeah, we still have it. Um, gosh, the, Do you remember the... when to clean it? Um, and I think you were the one that gave me this tip. You had to put some tape on the wheel and then pull the wheel off aggressively, kind of like you're. You know, you're pulling hair off your leg with a, uh, a wax strip, and then you could clean the underside of it and then snap it back into place. There were all those little tricks and, and ways to kind of keep it working and singing along well. What's funny is that both of those examples are about these pieces of tech, for lack of a better phrase, that had some analog component to them that was very important. So this like ability to like pop off a wheel and clean it yourself... <laughs> Yeah. Or this ability to open it up, pop out the RAM, and put in put in sixteen gigs rather than having Apple charge you three hundred dollars for the privilege, right? Yeah, well, that's where I don't, uh, you know, and I love Apple and I love Macs, but and and iOS devices as well is the margin they make on memory and RAM, especially flash memory, is ridiculous. So if you get a 16 gig iPhone, which won't allow you to barely install new iOS versions. It's so small. It's ridiculously small. It's it's so small that you can't really have it and use it. And then there's 64 and 128, and the prices to go up to those are insane. And if you yeah. got like a thumb drive or something, it would be a tenth, a twentieth of the price. It's the only device that I've, well, not the only one, but I've uh, every iPhone that we've had, we're always getting the lowest size because it doesn't make sense to spend that much money on memory that does not cost that much. Like it yeah. just feels like you're getting ripped off. And the, and so you're, I'm in the same situation as you are. And in fact, I lived this experience yesterday. Someone said to me like, well, show me the photos you have on your phone. And I mm. said... I don't have any photos on my phone because there's no space for them. There's no space, yeah. You can't and have. so I sync every day and pull all the photos I've taken off, you know, so I have them all, uh, but they're not, there's no way I can keep them all on my phone. I have, and I have a playlist that's maybe just two albums at a time I'm carrying around for music. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting how that space just gets eaten up by apps and the data they use to they need to 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 be functional i did see something Mm. after ios 8 came out i guess it was on daring fireball something about a guy's experience that hey i just lost all the remaining free space on this phone from doing this update and so then i figured out how to restore it and then update again and i got back for three or four gigs free and I followed the instructions, and it totally worked. I like got all this usable space back on my phone. But then it, just in the weeks of using it since then, I haven't added apps. I haven't done anything. I haven't added anything to the phone. 
just the working space of the apps and the documents that they're writing and the icons they're building and all that stuff that those gigs are gone now really so yeah, it, was, it just eats up yeah it just has to have a footprint i imagine it just kind of snaps back to somehow yeah like that display in itunes of 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 the portioning of your hard drive and what's covered by apps by documents by music by photos I think it's just and the all other. It's always crap. the other that yeah that it's you all, never get to know. It's yeah, in gray it's, or whatever. It's all it's all BS, um, which is what I found from doing this. You know, kind of hard restore. And I think it was like three weeks ago, and I told people about it. I was like, "Hey, check this out." I know it seems like if you've run out of space in your phone, do this thing. And I sent it to a couple of friends, and people were like, "Oh, great! I don't have to get a new phone now because people upgrade to these yeah. bigger versions." Because of the bloat, bloatware, yeah, and, for space. Yeah, and they can't update to iOS 8. So they, and, you know, I'm sure a lot of it, of course, is is on purpose. So that rather than, you know, you're out of space, obviously 16 gigs isn't good anymore. I need to get the iPhone 6 Plus with 64 gigs. So it pushes people to upgrade their phones. Um, and then also there's the psychology thing that they say always sell what you want to sell in, in the middle. So make it unattractive at the low end, which is what Apple kind of does with a 16-gig iPhone. They really want to sell the 64 gigs and then make the 128s just for the super pro people. But what they're doing is funneling everybody to the 64 gig. Um, But, you know, that seems a bit silly. There is this funny thing, too, like this this method of hmm, interacting with space, like storage space, that was introduced when the iPod came out, right? So was that 2000 or 2001? Somewhere around there. I think it was 2001, I think. And they always marketed it as like 3,000 songs in in your hand. And I was was one of those people who just, it's, okay, that experience of scrolling through 3,000 songs is the same experience as walking into a Walmart with like $100 in cash and not really knowing what you need to buy. Like, it's this American thing that all that choice, 3,000 songs, you know, 3,000 aisles or, you know, 300,000 square foot of shopping space and choice is a good thing that everybody wants. And I, right. I totally don't feel that way. Like, like if I had the 128 gig one, I probably would only use maybe... <laughs> 30 gigs you know like yeah would it change your workflow you, i mean in other words would you just start storing everything on the phone or, or? no because I, I don't, know, I, don't any... I don't like scrolling through it man i don't like scrolling through anything yeah. i don't like scrolling through instagram i don't like scrolling through all these options and choices you know it's just like just give me something reasonable like mm. let me see the last six months of photos or let me sync up specific albums but that having everything at your fingertips is something that like our culture values as this ultimate ideal, but it's not really a functional ideal because we don't have great ways of searching through this stuff yet. We really don't. The yeah, human the human to interface connection is still very early nineties, you know. It's like, oh I can search for it or scroll through it. Both of those don't really work so well. Should be yeah, able to we're talk just to kind it. of we're just kind of getting out of the the era of folders and things which also don't make any sense and moving into tagging which kind of makes sense but then tagging is just a a different way of doing folders in my mind so yeah it it, there isn't you know until there's smart 
aggregation systems, I guess smart playlists is a way to describe it, that are smarter than they are now, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, like now you could, you still, 2014, 14 years into this iPod thing, I mean, there were things when the first iPod came out, it didn't have play counts. Play counts were a real key to building smart playlists because the first play, play, smart playlist you're ever going to want is let me play the songs I've never heard. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Right? That's a super functional And you do one. that a lot, actually. I've heard you talk about doing that a lot or, have, you know, put together a playlist of the songs I haven't heard in six months. And, yeah. And I've never actually done that. I haven't really taken advantage of that. Well, anyways, you you still can't do that now in 2014 from the mobile platform. You can't oh, right, say, yeah. "Hey, let me hear this stuff." Or just, you know, like you still have to you have to kind of scroll through these um category it's like what? Artists, albums, categories, style. You can't get really fun and functional from the mobile level. Everything really still pulls me back to syncing. Like I'm a big sinker. That's see, and I think that's amazing. And I have to say, I think you're going to be a dying breed in a way because I, I feel like it. Yeah, yeah. I I don't think, um, and I'm kind of the other end of the spectrum where, and in a way, I feel I do it for convenience, but it's at the sacrifice of 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 actually having more control of my media. So, for instance, rather than spend the time to organize the tracks I own, I kind of lazily do Spotify, for instance, and subscribe to that and download from Spotify into the Spotify app. And, you know, Spotify's basically got everything I've got, although I've got some great stuff that's not in Spotify. But rather than go back to it and sync it and put it in my local folders and all that, I'm, I'm using the cloud-based, the web app system, as it were. Yeah. It, it's I can't a- say I'm proud of that, but... No, hey, it's it's again, it's this divide, this kind of analog digital model in which I want to know that I own a specific thing and it sits on this hard drive. And when the cloud goes down, I can still watch Ross McElwee's Sherman March, Sherman's March or listen to, you know, the parquet courts or whatever it is. Right. Like <laughs> that, that my media or entertainment isn't reliant on this huge cloud-based thing that I totally don't understand that and it the funny thing is it's still ones and zeros it's all just about where they live do they do they live out there where I have to have an internet connection to get to it or, or do they live here locally on accessible hard drives I'm gonna be a I think I'll be a fuddy-duddy about that I well think is I'm the a fuddy-duddy um... if I say I'm a fuddy-duddy right yeah, that, because I have to say I haven't heard the term "fuddy duddy" in a long time, so I think yeah, that qualifies. But the storage wars are interesting to me. Last tech thing, the store, you know, because last week Microsoft introduced um, unlimited storage, basically. So you know, Dropbox and Google, and they they charge two or three pounds over here for a hundred gigs, or you get a terabyte for like ten or fifteen pounds a month. Well, Microsoft, if you are a uh, Office 365 um, subscriber, which pretty much most businesses are one way or the other, you get free unlimited uh, storage. So I all of a sudden, and I use Google Drive and Dropbox basically for the free allotments and stuff and balance stuff between them. But now that Microsoft has just given me 
I just got an email that says now you have unlimited storage. And I don't mean like a couple of terabytes. It's, it's officially unlimited. I'm kind of, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with that. Because I think I'm, I either just start uploading everything, which will take a lifetime, you know, all of my Drobo stuff just as a backup. Um, or it's just as you say with a large iPhone, maybe it's something I don't ever even take advantage of. It's a good marketing move on their end. And I only use 20, 30 gigs of it. But it's interesting. I imagine Dropbox and Google Drive, they're all going to have to do the same thing. Unlimited is going to be the new thing. Yeah, everything's kind of being pushed in that direction, which is a good direction until people re- until people figure out how to do selective syncing so that when they're at work, their work computer that doesn't have a bigger a hard drive as big as the one at home starts pulling down, you know, their latest uh, Blu-ray torrent that they downloaded over the weekend and you know, where yeah, you can yeah. turn on and off certain things that um, it, it's just going to become another kind of complication that people will figure out and be able to utilize. But, uh, yeah, I guess the question is, like, will – okay, the benefit of that is retrie- being able to retrieve anything. But to be able to retrieve it, you have to have sent it out there to begin with and know it's there and retrievable, really. And, yeah, and for me, cl- these cloud-based storage systems, waiting for something to upload is just ridiculously yeah. painful. Yeah, so, so to me, the, the biggest part of that, like before talking about the benefits of unlimited storage, you have to talk about broadband speed and accessibility and price. And like that's not going to happen in the States as, as long as Comcast has this monopoly here. And there's pay, there's certain tiers for um, speed and uh, data caps and all that stuff. Like, it's I wonder <laughs> I wonder if that unlimitedness will force some of these cable companies into realizing that they should uh, act more like public utilities. I can't wait until the government takes over takes over broadband, and it won't, but it should, man. Uh, this it should be accessible to everybody and it should be next to free it's light it's light through a fiber optic cable it's limitless and they're trying to meter it out like uh like water i don't know i don't know i don't understand it all but i'm hoping that google has a um google fiber they're coming into certain cities they're looking at atlanta and uh there's there's this amazing initiative in Chattanooga. I'm not sure if Chattanooga has Google Fiber yet, but basically it's like, okay, we're going to have high-speed broadband available to this section of the city. And so in that section of the city, all these new businesses have sprouted up. A lot of oh, them are audio and video-based digital advertising companies that require high bandwidth. And you can just do it. And it's it, it's just... I don't understand what the downside is and why this stuff isn't happening with greater frequency and more speed. As as fast as chip technology keeps advancing, yeah, there are so think. many limiters in there that are keeping it from really doing what it could do. Uh, well, and, and I don't keep up with, and I don't keep up with the um, debate. I guess at the Congress level, the debate about. Um, what is it, internet fast lanes that everybody's talking about? The potential that if you pay more, you get 
I guess the big players like Netflix and Google and all of those guys can pay to get um, faster, I suppose, faster speeds or larger pipes in some way. Yeah, it it um, <clears throat> it's it's just the perfect American response trying to look at a piece of pie and see how uh, the wealthy, the wealthiest and most powerful can carve up the pie in a way that helps them the most. It's it, you know, it's just like, it's not, yeah, it's not about freedom and it's not about equanimity. And, uh, I wish that, uh, broadband was treated as such. There should, it should be, it should be, yeah. I mean, look at what Google's done in Mountain View, right? There's free accessible Wi-Fi available. I think they tried to do the same thing in San Francisco, but, um, it never flew for, I, I think because other competing businesses got in there and said, no, you can't take over a city like this. Like, we want to take over this part. And right, then you probably, get politicians probably. involved. And it's like, come on, guys. Like, it's sunlight. You know, if like, the, not to sound too weird about it, but the Internet and the tools that run on top of it, specifically, let's just look at Twitter. It's sunlight. It del- information can be sunlight. And it can enable education that could have never come to a particular place, whether that's in rural West Virginia or southwest Atlanta here where we live. It's like, it's sunlight. <laughs> stop trying to yeah. stop trying to charge an arm and a leg for it. I, yeah. Yeah, I don't know what's next to come on all that. <laughs> yeah, and I was about to say, it's not... Um, Let's figure I mean, it out right now. better out here. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, d- I don't know how we fix it. We got to figure out how to fix it. Oh, What's so crazy? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I guess I, I'm so I'm so uh, surprised at the slowness of things. Um, well, how long yeah. has has the initiative to have broadband in every home kind of thing? I mean, I feel like I've been hearing that for ten years. Right, and nothing. And how it, could it possibly? It couldn't be further from happening now. But like a company, a uh, company <laughs> that's great. A company like South Korea decided let's say in the late 90s that was important and they have the the highest degree of broadband uh penetration in of any country anywhere right let's say like 85 percent of the residents have access to speeds five times uh of what we have here in america and it's like that's an amazing that's a grand experiment you know you can't monetize that kind of experiment but it's like if you look at education rates in, in the states and you look at all these um, statistics about where we're heading in terms of knowledge, in terms of graduation, in terms of health and fitness, in terms of information, just because the Internet's here and somewhat available isn't really changing that stuff. But if you had an Ethernet jack and, or even a Wi-Fi signal available to every place, I mean that's what the Facebook dudes are trying to do in Africa right now, right? They're not they're not hey, this is a great PR move. They're like we can change civilization by bringing the internet to mil- to a gajillion people essentially through dirigibles. Is that how they're doing it? They're doing it Oh, I like, don't know. I I I actually don't know much about it. I think you really? I think they're through, planning uh, to do balloons it through, and things. through balloons for real. <laughs> Now who's sounding more like the fuddy duddy? Balloons, <laughs> yeah. Lord, weather balloons. Yeah, that's Good some uh, Zuckerberg thing. Yeah. So, 
so uh, we, so I don't know if you've seen this, but we were really rocking and rolling here last week. We were uh, watching TV on a Thursday night, and we hear this explosion, and we immediately are like, "Oh my God!" Like a transformer blew, but it was too close, and it was kind of in two. There were two distinct um, explosions essentially, and the second one hit maybe three seconds after the first one or second after the first one and it was so loud it shook our house and so we go running to the front of the house and we look out the window and there's blue sirens everywhere and a car had crashed into the front of our house you're kidding no i didn't hear that at all so it was so okay you open the windows and here's what you see there's smoke there's dust, it's dark, there's blue lights, there's a car in our front porch, and you can't see if there are people, let's say, dead or injured in the car, or if they fled, or what's going on. But the first thing you realize is the cops are here, which means the cops had to have been chasing this car. Wow, no, Jesus, tell me this story. (laughs) Don't let me interrupt, go ahead. So I'm like, so it's kind of like looking out your window and seeing, you know, that you're on an island suddenly. Like <laughs> the landscape you're used to seeing has just been changed so radically it totally doesn't compute for for a half second that feels more like 10 seconds and all you can do is just have your mouth open and be like there is a car that drove into our house, you know. I mean it's literally that shocking and weird. Uh so I so I'm like, I'm going to go out the back door and see what's going on. And then I'm like, there are cops. They were chasing a bad guy, which probably means there are weapons involved. I'm not going to go sauntering down my driveway. Hey, guys. Like, yeah. what? <laughs> what's happening Duh. here? What's going on? <laughs> you need a hand? <laughs> I'm over here yes. in the dark. <laughs> yeah. So Good. I'm glad you didn't do that. So once we got kind of the sense that things were clear and I got this by listening out the back and I could hear that it appeared that they chased one of the guys up around the corner and had were arresting him, uh, which turned out to be true. So after a few minutes, I kind of get out there on the front porch and yeah, so it was a crazy night. Um, a BMW. So what happened? Did the car, it was it a car. Your, go ahead. It so it hit your house. Yeah, it was a carjacking. So that was getting chased by the yeah. cops. And it was a guys who had carjacked four cars over the course of 24 hours, one of them being a federal agent's car. So there was ATF and the FBI and, you know, two or three different police uh, jurisdictions out front. And they crashed this uh, BMW SUV that they'd, uh, that they'd carjacked from a woman north of here. And uh, I get so they were getting chased, and they basically plowed through this intersection, took out this stop sign, and to take it out, you have to hop up a big curb and come down off it. Then they then they split this gate essentially like a ski gate between a really huge tree and another sign, probably with only six inches to spare on each side. They plowed right through there, up another curb across our neighbor's lawn and then slammed into the front of our house and the front of our house the porch is all granite and it's like a granite foundation and um 
cement steps, like a big block of eight steps made out of cement. So they cracked up the whole granite foundation. They they cracked up the stairs. They moved this 500-pound slab of granite. They like... <laughs> They like it like got flown from the impact. Um, there was like a big skull, you know, imprint on the inside of the windshield where one of the guys hit his head. Lots of DNA on the scene. Lots of stolen goods inside the car. They arrested one, and I think two others got away. But yeah, we're we're still just beginning the conversation with insurance about. Yeah, I, I'm sorry to ask the, yeah, I was going to ask, <laughs> really, who pays for that? I guess your home insurance. Is, yeah, home insurance. I mean, it's not like the city pays you for that. Uh, yeah, Nationwide better be crazy. on our side. Yeah. Dude, so can you use the front of your house? Can you go yeah. down the front steps? Yeah, okay. we can. Uh, we did a lot of, well, my dad came down and helped out and, um, there's currently kind of a hole in the front of our house where the car went in. It's not a big hole, but this whole uh, wall of granite blocks has been compromised. And so just a few nights ago, we hear this noise in the basement. I'm like, what the hell's going on? I turn on the lights and I, I walk down there and I start hissing, you know, just in case it's a cat that's in our basement, yeah. which happens from time to time because the house is, can be a little bit open. And uh, I look over, and it's a possum. <laughs> Dude, we had a possum in our basement. A possum was like, oh, there's a new opening here. I'm just going to mosey in here and see what's going on. So, yeah, it's it's been a crazy uh, 10 days or so. And this is all during the festival that I helped run. And uh, it was just it's been a ridiculous October. Jesus, you've had a, yeah, you've had a crazy, crazy month. Wow. Yeah. So, um, so they just, just, I'm just trying to get my head around it. Did they, they removed the car, right? So yeah, they at the, least did that the, for the you. The car right? got removed that night. The car actually took out our gas line. Uh, oh my God. They, they cleaved it at this right, right spot though, to not injure the pipe below the ground and to actually send this kind of wave of pressure that turned off this ball valve out at the street so we didn't have gushing uh natural gas which would have created a crazy explosion and the gas guy was like yeah you guys are totally lucky here i'm like why couldn't this car hit any other street in this goddamn city any other house in this goddamn city and he's like you're really really lucky because your house didn't explode it's tough to hear that i'm like well it is tough yeah thanks thanks pal that's great and and the other thing that's weird We've had, as you know, some of these experiences with law enforcement in our house over the years. And the weirdest thing, you go outside and it's cops arriving at the scene of some disaster or problem and how social they are. They're like, hey, Dan, hey, yeah. It's like that's where they all meet up and like exchange like recipes and like talk about their kids and like because there's always more cops than there is stuff to do. So the, there's always a couple cops standing around, like, shooting the shit, talking stuff about basketball. <laughs> just catching up. You're just right, catching up. They can't see each other down. And, and you'll right. see them greet each other, like, oh, we haven't seen you at a crime scene since last October. Dave, how's it going? You got your uh, fingerprint duster? Okay, let's do this. You know, like, it, and while you're grieving or upset or just, you know, while, while you're seeing, you know, whatever 
whatever ill has fallen you, it's always kind of a meeting ground for, uh, for the folks who take care of those things. I don't know how people are cops or how people are in families with cops. It's got to be crazy business, especially in a city like this. Dude, that is, I gotta say, that is, I wasn't expecting that story. I thought, I thought you, we'd talk about, you know, you might have still been working on your deck. Did this mess up your new deck that you put up there? Yes. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah, so that might all have to be redone. So, yeah, we we redid the deck in the summer and then it just got taken out by a carjacker. Well, the best part of doing that deck, I remember you saying, was getting the beer and enjoying the time with your dad. So maybe, hopefully, that can happen again unfortunately it's not the 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 actual deck um the decking is in good shape it's just all the stuff beneath it that's kind of messed up so yeah it's it's just uh it's just ridiculous um makes you think you know how are things uh how are things coming together over there for you guys for us, oh, I mean, I'm not sure how to respond. We're we're fine. <laughs> this, is, this isn't a uh, war of stories. I'm just no. I, I just we've had get our, a, I, I get sometimes. I'm just like Jesus Christ. What more can I say about it? Do you know what's interesting is because well, and you would ask me if I'd heard about it, and I guess did you had you tweeted or showed pictures of it or something like that? Because yeah, and the reason I ask is I had you know lately I've just not been on Twitter or facebook or anything i've kind of been that's great you know, i hate this term kind of been off the grid so i i yeah i i don't kind of know what's going on in a lot of places so but were you in germany lately i was so i was in berlin last week um and um i was in poland i guess the uh couple of weeks i mean we haven't spoken really for it's been a month or two hasn't it it's feels been at least, like i think six to eight weeks it's been a while it's definitely been six to eight weeks. Um, and the best, I mean, I guess the best thing I've done in that period was this trip to Poland, which was a work trip. Um, but I really, I have to say, I enjoy that country. There's something about it. They, even the, the Polish people that I meet there and when we talk, they they kind of say that Poland is a country that's under construction. So it's kind of like pardon the dust. Uh, hi, it's Poland, pardon the dust kind of thing. And they are very much an up-and-coming kind of resourceful, um, you know, proud people. Definitely a proud people. I mean, they've historically been, um, you know, uh, partitioned and ripped apart and obviously in the Second World War decimated and taken over and invaded by Germany and Russia and then flattened by Germany and then flattened by Russia. It's just crazy. But they're still, you know, they're very still a very proud people and going there even for a few nights and I'm going for work. So I'm staying in a hotel and going to offices and going back to the hotel, but I get to go out in the evening and have a beer and have a meal with people. But it's amazing to me how, you know, the pride people are very proud of being Polish and of their work ethic, which is exceptional. And um, yeah, it's just really interesting seeing that and seeing how we, you know, in, in, I suppose the more, or older EU countries, the further west countries, the more, um, I guess, for lack of a better term, original EU countries, how, um, you know, we're kind of this, we're in a lot of ways the lazy fat cats who sit over here and and there's countries like Poland and Romania and um, Bulgaria and Estonia and these people are, are really working hard and they come to to our countries and show us how to how it's done really it's really interesting 
Um, and I guess there's similar things that are reflected in the states, the way, you know, and I know that immigration, it's made me think, and I guess what I'm kind of coming to is it's made me think in a lot of different ways about, you know, the immigration question and how it happens here in the UK. People are constantly up in arms about Polish people, in particular, Poland's the big scapegoat, about Polish people coming here and taking their jobs. And, you know, that story, that that complaint, I think, happens everywhere. Because I remember in the States, certainly growing up in Texas, people would always complain about people from Mexico and um, Latin American countries doing doing the same. And actually, you go to these countries and you meet the people and, and you see what's happening there. And you know, I'm saying good on them. They should they they should take whatever they want, really. Um, but yeah, it's just interesting seeing it in a different guise and seeing that I thought in a way the UK or something about Europe would be more progressive and more open and more intelligent about the immigration question, as it were. But it's exactly the same. It's the same here as anywhere. I, th- I think I realized that. And I know that that's... Yeah, back when... um. Maybe it was like 10 years ago when there were all those car burnings out in the suburbs of Paris. Do you remember that? Oh, yes, yes. When it was all crazy in France. Yeah, and I it, remember that. I was, and, and I also think through French cinema, there have been movies that I've seen that I can't, I can't recall to mind specifically which ones right now that tackle that immigration question where it's like a movie <clears> – <throat> filmed in paris that's just all north african actors and actresses and a very much an immigrant story and yeah i i understand what you're saying about coming from the states you think europe already has all that figured out and they've yeah that's what i always assume no it's the same yeah yeah it's totally the same you know there's an interesting piece on poland my i have very slim understanding of poland but I did read this crazy book we might have talked about. I read it a couple of years ago by this just insane Republican right-wing nutjob guy who created this company called Stratfor, which is um, they had a big uh, leak through WikiLeaks like a year ago where WikiLeaks obtained their... Um, uh, internal emails and it's basically strategic forecasting. So ex CIA people uh, for hire for governments anywhere to do strategic geopolitical forecasting, saying, "Okay, Argentina, here's what's you, here's what you need to be looking at for the next five years, ten years, fifteen years." Right. So that's right, that's the service that. that they offer. So the head of that wrote this book, and I think it's called "The Next Hundred Years." And I just bought it on a whim because I love the idea of, as as you know, just talking about where the future might be heading because it seems more and more interesting every day. And he pulls this whole geopolitical nest into um, two, two or three countries that are going to be of prime importance. One is Mexico, specifically just because of the labor that they offer and can offer America and the world. And these kind of flashpoints coming together, one being Mexico rising as a kind of labor superpower. And the other is Poland. So really interesting. Yeah. And, and the, the, the sections that he writes about why he thinks Poland is going to become the most important country in Europe is like super fascinating. Uh, 
and I can't, you know, specifically recall all of it, but basically they're, they're geographically, like their story about why is Poland Poland and why have they been through all of this, it's a story of geography first. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. They're this pinch point, and he, this guy, believes that they are the real kind of stopgap valve between Putin and Russia's kind of re reaggression into the West, and that the states are going to put everything they can into Poland, and Poland's going to be the flashpoint for all this. Which, um, you know, who knows if it's true? It could be complete BS, but it's an interesting speculation yeah but what you just described is exactly what's already happened historically right. so you know in in the second world war you know same type of thing the allies were relying on poland to to be the buffer right um first world war again even before that even before it was poland same type of thing you know when it was parts of it were east prussia which was again the the area that was between um, you know, Russia and Germany. Yeah, it's interesting. You're right. It's all about geography. The geography just doesn't change, <laughs> you know, like natural buffers of mountains or, or bodies of water that just doesn't change. The amount of people and the politics change, but um, yeah, that's uh, pretty crazy. And you know what's interesting is just the tradition. So I, where I was in Poland was... Um, Krakow or, or Krakow, which is in the south, and they've got you know it's it's a lovely city. It's probably the nicest city in Poland, if only because it was one of the few cities that wasn't leveled in the Second World War. So it still has a very historic um, old town and old center. And the coolest thing is that for a long time, hundreds of years, they've every hour on the hour in the church, the main cathedral in the center of Krakow there will be a, a trumpeter that will appear to play a quick tune at the top of the hour every hour, at least during day hours, daylight hours. And what they do is this trumpeter starts um, playing this tune and then always stops it abruptly, like halfway through a verse, you know, as if, I mean, and you know exactly that it must have been stopped abruptly. And it's done so because three, 400 years ago, a trumpeter was, was playing, let's say it was the anthem of the city, um, and he was shot by an invading army's archer just as he was singing or playing that part of the tune. And wow. so it's basically reenacted every hour. And so they'll play this lovely tune, and it's going, on, going along great, and you're kind of getting into it, and you know what's coming next, and then it stops. Always suddenly stops. Uh. And he closes the door, and it stops at the same place, and they do it every hour. And it's really fascinating that they, you know, that they still celebrate that in a way every hour there in Krakow. That's beautiful. Yeah, I find that amazing. And then the other thing, which I thought was just too much, is you've got this beautiful city, lovely city where, you know, it's got an old town, masses of history. And then you look to your left and your right, and there are tons of American tourists going to see Auschwitz. And Auschwitz oh. is just on the outskirts of Krakow. Um, it's, a, it's in a town called Oswiczem, which is the Polish word for that town, and the, the Germans renamed it Auschwitz, which is a German word. And Oswiczem is just outside of Krakow. And so tourists, if they're going to Auschwitz, they, are, they go to Krakow. 
And the amount of tourism that is specifically about going to Auschwitz is amazing. And the types of tourists that are there are, I guess, for lack of a better term, they're, they're amateurs. So <laughs> even in my even in my hotel, like I would hear these American accents and people, you know, they were kind of unsure about what food to take from the breakfast buffet. And, oh, what was that? And, and it's interesting because Krakow is a city that's not necessarily easy to get to. And these kind of traveling amateurs, because they wanted to get ultimately to Auschwitz, they have made a journey that at their travel level or their competence of traveling is much above them. So it's kind of funny seeing them try to traverse the city and they get lost because, you know, there's not a lot of street signs and it's confusing streets. And they just they walk around with their bifocal lenses and their umbrellas and their, um, you know, Timberland clothes. And it's, it's just so funny and they're so loud and. Everything is um, kind of geared to them as well. So there'll be shops, lovely old, hundreds-year-old shops. And in the front, it will say um, Auschwitz visitors, uh, you know, special lunch. And, you know, people wow. have the special lunch. And it's it's just really interesting. There is such a, um industry around it. And I can't help but think that Krakow, I suppose, benefits from that, obviously benefits from that tourist industry. And the um the whole kind of auschwitz experience what i'm seeing is kind of the behind the scenes around the walking through the concentration camp part of it this is what the tourists do outside of that and it's just interesting seeing them in their natural habitat in a very old hard to get to european city you know what's funny Um, is is there have been photographers who've tackled that specific thing the kind of in influx of tourism to Holocaust sites, specifically Auschwitz. I've seen, I think, I think I've seen two projects and they both, in fact, it might be around a particular weekend, uh, at Auschwitz where maybe a hundred thousand people show up where it's like a real pilgrimage kind of weekend. So you get people from all over the world who are commemorating being there. So there's a lot of like smiling and like, right, you know, right. gang yeah, sign yeah. waving, you know, like <laughs> white, like what was that? White girls with gang signs. That was a Tumblr a few years ago. That was pretty funny. But, um, yeah, so the same kind of intersection of these ne- maybe neophyte travelers or neophyte tourists. This is their first trip abroad. A lot of them are look like high school students. And God bless them for going to a place where they're going to learn some history that might be difficult to get to. You know, hey, that that's a that's good, but it's it's funny your textual your conversational description of it is almost better than all the photography projects I've seen uh yet about that particular uh, pilgrimage. I'd like to see those photography projects because it feels like it is kind of, you know, Martin Parr would love it, for right. instance. Right, the stuff he would Martin, see in Krakow. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, he would love it. I mean, there are people kind of stuffing their face, um, and they're big people, incidentally, <laughs> most of the time. They're, they're having huge meals and licking ice cream, and, um, you know, they've got their, their maps out, and, and especially on the mornings that they go out, because my hotel had a regular shuttle that would take people out to Oswichim from the hotel. And they would meet downstairs and literally they would just eat so much breakfast. They would just <laughs> stuff their faces. I couldn't believe it. I'd, I'd have a little coffee and a hard-boiled egg. And these guys, I mean, they were just shoveling it in and laughing it up, you know, as you were saying in a way. And yeah. At their table. And then they get on the shuttle out to 
out to Auschwitz. That's that's it's pretty amazing. Like you know you know what though? Like if you think about the morning of a funeral, and and I haven't been to many, but I guess just kind of um, extrapolating or imagining a little bit, there is a nervous tension on the morning of a funeral. And especially if you're all gathered together and kind of humor and a little bit of idiocy can help kind of break break the spell before getting into the heaviness of a day. And maybe that's also just an American thing. It's definitely something in my family that you can only deal with mm-hmm. so much heaviness. And so you try to keep it light until until you're called upon to be serious. I have that in my yeah. own personality to their defense. Uh, but yeah. there's another yeah, absolutely. there's another. Uh, I have a friend who's a photographer who spent a lot of time there, specifically on this Holocaust uh, angle, and he investigates, um, I don't want to say, I'm not sure if it's killing sites or more grave sites, more the forgotten grave sites from, uh, from the Holocaust that are still accessible in Poland and very overgrown. Like maybe there's one guy in the town or one guy in the village who knows what it is there and tries to keep it clean. And he does some amazing kind of, uh, brilliant writing and photo essays about these forgotten sites. So there's really good work that's being done, uh, (laughs) compared to the stuff I was just telling you about. Interesting. Yeah. 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 No, I'd like to see that. So point me to, uh, I will, I will. Put to, or put links in the show notes or something because I'd like to see that, definitely. And I'll put a link, I'll send a link for the show notes um, because somebody, many people I'm sure, have recorded that, um, that trumpet. Oh, I'd love to so see that. So you can that. hear where yeah. it stops kind of dramatically. In fact, when I was in Krakow the first time, which was in like 2000, I had my little portable recorder, which you turned me on to. It was really good digital recorder that had two microphones on top. Little, and I recorded yeah. it, but... I lost all those files. That's Ugh. the trouble. I lost all my grades. I used to record the sounds of pubs and, yeah. you know, women's loud shoes down a street uh, like you had done in London that time and, you know, that kind of stuff. Just random sounds. And I, I haven't done that in ages. You know, dedicated recorders are good things, you know, actually, Yeah, I, I, I'm using one this very second and was happy to have an excuse to to pick up one that wasn't broken like my like the one that I'd had for 10 years. Uh, and I'm using it and I actually, I'm using it to kind of make some new artwork or, or whatever it is. Uh, and I, I recorded a friend telling a story like this 40 minute long story the other day. And it just felt so great to be, it's a weird thing to wear headphones and hold a mic up to somebody and like be working in a soundscape. Essentially, that's what you're doing. You're trying to kind of make the soundscape work in the best way possible. It's really fun. I've always loved working with audio. And it, that's another kind of funny thing. Remember that project I did two years ago with the record with the Grateful Dead recordings of them tuning yeah, tuning yeah. up, right? Yes. It's tuning 77. So I think it was last week it went viral again. Yeah, that I saw on Rolling in Rolling Stone. Yeah, Seven. right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, 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 I saw that. <laughs> I was. Uh, that Can you is, believe that as made you it say, to, drop the mic to Rolling point. Stone? That's just that that. Oh yeah, right. I emailed that to you. Uh, I thought that was new news. So funny, so funny. It was even funny to see. Well, what's the response been now that it's been in Rolling Stone? Have you? Um... More? Are, are you? Can you map that kind of response from Rolling Stone? Yeah. The the. 
the archive page that it's on at the Internet Archive records the number of listens to it. So, all right, okay. So I like to think about stadiums as a measurement of people and population. Like there are small stadiums, you know, let's say a Phillips Arena here in Atlanta, I think maybe is probably under 20,000. Usually basketball arenas are like 16,000 for indoor. And then you get outdoor stadiums like uh, L.A. Coliseum probably seats 100,000 for a soccer game. So, yeah, like 65,000 people have listened to this. Like, wow, that's great, and, dude. That's and, fantastic. you know, it's not this million YouTube video type stuff, but 60, it's, it's essentially like this Cajun type piece about silence in some ways. I mean, it's unlistenable in a lot of ways. And that 65,000 people would try to listen to something that's, uh, that thwarts <laughs> being listened to uh, is kind of exciting. It's actually amazing. Yeah, it's it's kind of cool. I'm I'm happy about that. That's great, dude. That's great. Yeah, I loved. Um, I think you sent <laughs> you sent me a mail, and I laughed because you said, uh, "Okay, uh, I'm I have made it to Rolling Stone." Drops the mic, <laughs> walks out. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. that is it. That is uh, that is great. Um, so what else is shaken? We should wrap this up soon. Oh gosh! But, but what? Yeah, um, I know you got a girls. Gosh. You got bedtime. You got. Time I do. Change, I do. You got I, got, work. I got the girls. I know, and it's dark here. It's so dark. You know, it gets dark once we set our clocks back, which we did last week. It gets dark here at like three thirty in the afternoon. Yeah, it's man. It's depressing. It's so dark, and um, when you guys kind of yeah, move no, back I'll... to back to the states, <laughs> you sound like my mom <laughs> or my dad. That's a touchy subject. Or my m- many of my family. Um, I don't know. I think uh, I think we're we're settled here for a while. You know, the funny thing is, is my wife wants to move back to the states. Wants to move to the states so much more than I want to move back. Wow. So what's funny is I'm actually the one who ends up being the um, the one keeping the anchor here in the UK. She, she's always wanted to live in in America. Well, you know, Eddie, I never and wanted to move to the south. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. So all I'm saying is that like sometimes really great things can happen from decisions you make that might not be the first decision that you want to make, you know? Like we've yeah, we've talked yeah, a lot about like just that leaving San Francisco, leaving something you love for a big unknown. I I I'm not recommending you leave Europe. Like like I think it suits you well and I think I think you're great there and and all that. But Three thirty, daylight. Three thirty sunset. Yeah, that's not good. That's you're it's too far good. north, man. I'm way you're too, too far, far north. north. And I mean, really, if I'm gonna be, you know, if I am, that's too far north. To that's further north than Maine, that. right? Like you're above Portland. Maine. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, that's definitely, definitely. like I would and not want if you I'm to live do in that, Canada. I might as well. Well, I might as well live in in Scandinavia. I mean, if we're gonna do it, you do it, right? Right. You, you eat the fish and. <laughs> You, you get cold. Uh, I you might as well do get, that. Get your mucklucks. The, right. If you're that far north, let's get some white stuff and ice and reindeer and exactly. uh, yeah, just exactly. go for it. Yeah. You might as well go for it because here I'm just getting rained on. That's all that's happening. <laughs> yeah. And it's, yeah, that it's, climate. I'm getting rained on in the dark at three thirty. Well, all of that stuff. So you can't change the geography of England, right? And so England's yeah. geography, this island that that won't allow much snow to land because it'll turn to rain because the ocean around it is warmer. You know, this is, I don't understand how weather works, but that's my understanding of how weather works. That's, 
it's precisely correct. So in the winter, it'll get very cold, very cold, but it'll stay one degree, one degree, mind you, above freezing. So that like it's Seattle. very cold. Yeah. The wind is brisk, constant wind going multiple directions at the same time. You can't use an umbrella. And it's freezing cold and it's wet. So, so it's, it is the worst combination you can imagine. So here's the thing that you got to look out for is if geography stays the same and it's only the people that change, is that that geography has created probably in many ways this English ideal and this English personality and this English view of the world. And like it all comes from that stuff. Like it, oh, it comes from other sources too, but there is this kind of uh, chin up in the suffering and miserableness. Like, what's that? What's that damn inspirational poster everybody has? Like, uh, keep on keeping on. What you know? What is it? Oh, uh, keep calm and carry on. <laughs> yeah. Because yes, it's because yes. it's because it's dark at three thirty and it's raining in thirty four well, degrees. Well, there's that, and I think keep calm and carry I on. I think it's a direct reason. That's why pubs. That's that's where pubs came from. You, you got to go. You got to yes. sit inside, commiserate, and get drunk. Yeah, you know, you yeah. got to do it because you can't sit outside. There is no outside really. Maybe two weeks out of the year, um, so you go to the pub and you have a couple of pints, several pints. You sit there most Sundays. You sit there all day. I used to before children, <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, that's that's what you do. That's the English thing: is sit in and drink. And I think there is someone has done a study that um, that per capita drinking rates in certain countries is directly related to weather in some way. And I I think that that is true. Where um, and you know pub drinking, I I'm kind of careful to say it's social because a lot of the time people kind of keep to themselves and drink, but. Going out and drinking makes you feel like you're being active and doing something, although you're it's just in, getting you're wasted. In the of a, an area where you're just getting wasted. That, that's a, you're actively getting wasted. You're not passively getting wasted. It's kind. So. It's kind of like it, this is a small. This is a thin analogy, but it would be like me yesterday saying like, "I really got to get out of the house with the with the girl and do something productive," and because uh, you know it was super cold. It actually snowed in Georgia yesterday. Not here, but just a little north wow. of here. And I was like, oh, well, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Where should we go? The Growler store. Yeah, let's go to the Growler yeah. store. Yeah, see, get, awesome. get a new Growler for the weekend, right? Poor weather. Uh, good beer. Poor weather. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, oh, shoot. that's the way it works. Mm-hmm.